Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Thank you very much for coming uh, today to the Griffith Asia Institute and then uh, Griffith Law School Public Seminar. Today we have uh, Professor Satvinder Jass uh, from the Dixon Poon School of Law, uh, King's College London. And then um, Professor Jass is a human rights expert focusing on the policy-oriented work and has taught at a number of universities uh, in the UK and in the US, into including the Harvard Law School and Indiana University at Bloomington. He is a fellow uh, of the Royal, Insti- uh, Royal Society of Arts and is a council member of it and then also is a member of its Migration Commission, which published this groundbreaking report uh, titled Migration, a Welcome uh, opportunity in 2005. He is a council member also of uh, Encounter and of the Society of Legal Scholars. In 2010, his name was added to the panel of the arbitrators of the Indian Council for Arbitration. Professor Just seeks to incorporate the role of scholars, uh, uh, role of scholar, practitioner, and an activist in all the various fields of his expertise. He contributed as a renowned expert at the invitation of the Home Affairs Committee uh, to a pioneering seminar on human trafficking at the Houses of Parliament in 2009, which brought together chairs of all the Home Affairs Committee in Europe in a new initiative to harmonize um, the standards and the procedures in this field. Professor Just has been involved in and given policy speeches for various think tanks, including the Royal Society of Arts, Encounter, and the Rontree's Trust. He regularly appears as a practicing barrister in the High Court and the Court of Appeal, and is listed as a legal expert um, in the directory of the legal experts. Uh, it, it is a real great uh, pleasure to have him here, and then he will give us uh, the paper uh, titled The Human Trafficking, Asylum, and the Problem of Protection. Please welcome Professor Jess. Thank you very much for those uh, kind words of uh, uh, welcome. It's, uh, of course, a pleasure and a privilege for me to be here at such a fine establishment uh, dedicated to learning, and uh, I'm particularly gratified to learn that I haven't had the British weather follow me uh, here as it did in Canberra, where it was uh, almost as bad as, as it is back home in, in London. The last email I got from London back home last night showed that it was uh, still raining uh, incessantly and as grim as ever. Um, I have been thinking since I, my arrival here, um, reading about the papers as I've been doing every morning and reading about the boats, these uh, uh, boats that keep coming and will not stop exactly what the tenor of my speech will be today. Um, I've been asked to speak for 45 minutes. I'm mindful of the fact that any speech longer than 20 minutes risks running into difficulty because apparently if you speak for longer than 20 minutes, um, only a third of uh, your audience will normally hear you. Um, The other third will hear you but not understand you. And the remaining third will uh, hear you uh, but not uh, understand you. Uh, and, uh, but be that as it may, let me uh, say something about the boats. Um, 
the boats that keep coming uh, got me thinking about exactly what it is that one is doing in terms of policy. Um, as we all know, the way in which we frame a debate determines the way in which we lend our arguments to it. The way in which you perceive a problem uh, dictates the manner in which you deal with it. Now, looking at the papers every morning, what struck me was this, that somewhere along the line, I think we've lost the narrative. There was quite a um, clear-cut narrative uh, going back to the time when the Refugee Convention was first formulated in 1951. It came directly out of uh, the Second World War and the experience, the terrible experience of the Nazi Holocaust, where a number of European countries had let down people really that ought to have given, been given sanctuary. And you had uh, the first international human rights instrument in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights followed quickly by the Refugee Convention. And to this day, no other international instruments routinely, year by year, uh, rescues as many people in the world as does the Refugee Convention. So it's a wonderful and wonderfully effective instrument, not just words, but actually uh, rescues people. And, and so it was, and so it remained for a good 50 years, because after the Second World War, uh, the Refugee Convention was had its temporal restriction lifted in 1961, so it was now uh, open to all those countries that were going through a process of decolonization, namely the African countries, all of whom, if they ended up with tin pot dictators, uh, could have their people apply for asylum in the privileged West, which had uh, the great luxury of having democratic uh, regimes and orderly government. Um, and again, so it remained. Um, and that, that was a very uh, laudable uh, narrative, uh, and a narrative that really harked back to how migration was actually a very noble tradition, a very honorable tradition. And you can look way back into biblical times where you have this idea of the promised land, now people migrate, Moses and the others, looking for a place of safety, looking for a place to build your lives. And, and each one of us here, I dare say, if you go back far enough, have migrated for a better future. Certainly I have. And J.K. Galbraith also said, did he not, that uh, the history of... Uh, um, human society has for a large extent been the history of, uh, of migrations. Um, and um, in fact, the, 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 the better endowed amongst us, the survival of the fittest, if that be the test, are always people who uh, pick up sticks and move to go and do things and work and build your life from anew. And that narrative was, was a very, very uh, solid narrative until, of course, the uh, Cold War happened. When the Cold War happened, the moral imperative to taking people suddenly disappeared. Up to that time, we took in people like uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, Anatoly Sakharov, even Navratilova came and played fabulous tennis for us in America, and she was welcomed. So pretty much anyone, and I met in, when I was in America, met any number of people from Lech Walesa's Poland who had fled the communist regimes, and there they were. And then, of course, communism implodes. It implodes without the firing of a single shot, either by Margaret Thatcher or by Ronald Reagan. And suddenly, the capitalist West is able to proclaim its moral and political superiority, as it indeed uh, generally could, uh, because communism was exposed as the uh, false promise that it was. But along with it went also the need to take in uh, refugees 
from, from a particular part of the world. And that's where the narrative ended. And if people then came with the wars that ensued from Africa or from the Far East or from the Middle East, a new narrative needed to be put in place. Now, that new narrative, as I see it, has still got to be properly fashioned. But what you have in its place is a negative narrative that is taking root. And that negative narrative, in the absence of anything positive, is to do with the war on terror. These refugees, be they the one million child refugees just announced two days ago from Syria, be they the 10,000 refugees that have crossed over in literally, literally an hour or two hours from Syria to Lebanon, uh, be they the 81% of the world's refugees that are living in Africa, not in the West, are all coming from problem countries. They are all the other, the other that we are fighting against. So, not insignificant, surely, is the fact that if you look at the boats that are heading this way to Australia, uh, the ethnic composition of them, right at the top, are firstly the Iranians, are they not? Right, the one country in the Middle East that still is not under the control of the USA, the one country that still uh, is battling away at saying all the inappropriate things that we in the West do not like, followed closely by Afghanistan, that country that uh, uh, dehumanizes women, uh, blows up uh, you know, girls' schools, uh, subjects women to murder, that country where these medieval barbaric practices of amputation are carried out, that country where Osama bin Laden escaped from and Mullah Omar lives, and where we've been bombing. And that's where they come from. And that negative narrative really has taken root. And what you've got, therefore, is essentially the securitization of migration policy. Everything is being viewed through the prism of security. And so as we see dictatorships tumble in the Middle East and revolutions simmer in Egypt and Tunisia and the Arab awakening transmute itself into something quite different with the counter-revolution now taking place in Egypt, what you're getting is that concerns over our security are beginning to replace our humanitarian ideals. No longer is it the humanitarian impulse that is driving us in this direction. And so securitization, exclusion, internal relocation, Nauru, the PNG, send them off somewhere else, uh, but don't let them land here. Uh, I mean, as far as I understand, uh, Nauru has some three families on this rock that are battling it out for control of the, of the rock. That's a completely uninhabitable place. You know, no vegetation, no pastures, nothing that you can grow. And people are just being dumped there. And a clear violation of the uh, fundamental rule of law in international law, the principle of non-refumal. Non-refumal, the law of non-return, which says anyone that comes seeking sanctuary to your borders. In fact, the word asylum comes directly out of the Greek word asylon, which means to give sanctuary. Anyone who fled to the Greek temple would be able to seek immediate sanctuary. And in my living memory, in my time in living in England, until very, very recently, I can well recollect, asylum seekers, Sri Lankans and the others, if they made their way to a church, the house of God, any church in the Midlands where I grew up and so on, and the church opened its door, the police would not enter. That's they would remain, the campaign would be waged from inside the church until the government would give in and then they would be able to come out. Now that idea of a sanctuary, 
the, the, the notion that really fugitives will be able, provided that they have a well-founded fear of persecution, to go to a place where they will be safe, is a use cogens of international law. It is a fundamental law that can't be breached. And yet what we're doing is crossing our heart three times and saying, oh, well, actually we're not, we're not actually turning anybody away. These people have never landed here. What we've done is we've intercepted the boats and we've sent them off to Nauru or to the or Papua New Guinea. Well, effectively, that's what we've done. You know, for all we may, might know, coming from Iran as they do or Afghanistan, they may well have a well-founded fear of persecution. So the narrative is missing. And what we've seen, therefore, is different ways of um, trying to deal with the problem. And in the UK, we've had, for example, attempt after attempt to try and circumscribe the right to marry. So the view in uh, Europe, for example, has for a long time been that, well, look, we, we let the primary immigration take place. You know, people came from the East, the Far East, from Africa, and so on, maybe as with work permit holders, maybe even legally, and so on. And some might have been asylum seekers. But once they've settled, look, the last thing we want is secondary immigration. We don't want them to go off and marry uh, a wife from their own country. Now, in communities like Islamic communities in Pakistan and Afghanistan, who have a tradition of an arranged marriage, what they're always doing is looking back home to get a, a, a husband or a wife in from home. And what the government has done is uh, initially, uh, in a case that I, as a barrister, took myself to the Supreme Court three years ago, um, was a case where the government had really said that you will not be allowed to marry uh, in the UK. Uh, a person. So let's say a Zimbabwean comes and he meets another Zimbabwean or he meets a Zambian and the two of them decide to get married. It might be a general marriage but they cannot get married because they do not have firm immigration status. If one of them risks going back, they will not come back in again. So the issue goes, well, what do they do? Now, the one place that they could not circumscribe was getting married in a Church of England ceremony. And the reason for that were essentially political difficulties. You try telling in England we have the established church of the state. Um, and the Anglican Church of England is really the established church. You try telling them that they will not marry people and you've got a political battle on your hands. So the Zimbabwean and the Zambian and the others went off and got themselves married in the Church of England. And that's how they circumvented it. And we had cases which then I, together with others, ran all the way to the Supreme Court and we won. And then the government having, knowing that it would lose, I mean, I say to my students, a first-year law student would, would know that you would lose this case. So why is the government arguing it? They would lose because we, the way we frame the argument as lawyers, is the right to marry as a fundamental right. The right to marry is enshrined in the European Convention of Human Rights. It is enshrined in the Universal Declaration. And it's there because, historically again, the experience with eugenics especially during the Nazi Holocaust, you know, the, the, the subhuman races must not be allowed to procreate and so on, is really anathema. It is absolutely vile for a democratic society governed by the rule of law to stop people from getting married. If you look at the South African constitution nowadays, the one right that they have extolled loudly and clearly is for people to marry whoever they wish and whenever they wish, because that was, during apartheid, a right that was restricted. So we won that. Well, three years later, the government tries again now. And the government's latest now is to say, anyone who does not earn a minimum of £16,800 will not be able to get married. Because if they marry uh, earning less than that, 
effectively, they will be looking to the public purse to be able to uh, maintain their husband or their wife. Bearing in mind that the average wage of uh, a person in England is about £22,000, and even that in London, if you're living out in the provinces in the north and so on, and with unemployment now ravaging the country with its recession and so on, hey, there are very, very many people who uh, you know, don't earn that sum, and many refugees and asylum seekers who often have a restriction that they can't work anyway cannot earn £60,800. And so again, we've got involved in that. And we've won in the High Court. It's not known yet whether the case is going to go forward again. This is an attempt by the government to, again, stop the other coming and taking root in the country. But they're doing it through a roundabout way through, through marriage. And of course, there are other attempts to restrict immigration through the guise of refugees, or these refugees you know, who are coming from all the corners of the earth, and we can't stop them, so let's restrict that. And the example that I want to talk to you today is that of human trafficking. What is human trafficking? And really, how do you uh, formulate the debate? Uh, is it about these people coming on boats? Is it about people flying in? Is it about genuine refugees? Is it about illegal immigrants who are trafficked? What is really this thing about? And. Uh, uh, I can do no better than to begin by saying that normally the distinction between human smuggling and human trafficking is that where you are smuggled, you are an active agent in your own smuggling. You pay someone and you say, can you take me through to the boot of a, uh, a car or a lorry or in uh, the uh, luggage compartment of an airline? And people have come in that way. Some of them have frozen to death when they've, they've come in, into London and take me in that way and I can be smuggled in. You're an active uh, agent. Trafficking, however, is one where you're not an active agent, where you're taken in either to render sexual services as a prostitute, as a child who is taken in to work in some rich family, as a Chinese cockle picker to work, for example, uh, in uh, the menial industries, the kind of industries that your resident workforce will not be involved in. And you're duped. You're duped with higher wages, a better living, a child that a parent sends from North Africa for a better education actually ends up just being exploited. And that's the general sort of distinction. It's not a very watertight distinction, but that's the general distinction. But is it, is it right? Well, one person whom I'm going to be seeing tomorrow at Monash University is Professor Susan Kneebone. Uh, and she's been writing quite a lot here in Australia about uh, 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 human trafficking. And she says... In reality, many smuggled persons are indeed fleeing to seek refugee status elsewhere. So she is saying that actually these are not even people who are coming to work or wanting to be smuggled. They're actually refugees. And that, quote, a focus on the trafficked stroke smuggled dichotomy demonstrates its limits in this context and the potential it has to conceal the refugee. Unquote. She says, quote, there is a clear nexus between the circumstances which create refugees and those which lead to trafficking. In some regions, the structural factors which lead to trafficking could also satisfy the meaning of persecution, such as social and economic exclusion of minorities, gender, age discrimination, economic underdevelopment, intra-family violence, xenophobia, corruption, unemployment, and internal conflict.
unquote. And she argues that, quote, traffic persons and refugees often travel the same routes and use the same facilitators. The two cohorts are indeed often indistinguishable. And Richard, uh, sorry, Professor Rizad Petrovich, who teaches at uh, Aberystwyth University in Wales in England, also a specialist in this area, he says um, that uh, what is needs emphasizing is, are the experiences of the victim of trafficking. And he says, quote, human trafficking is clandestine. And that, quote, what is well known is the nature of the experiences of the victims and the gravity of the breaches of their most basic rights and interests. Some will have consented to travel to another country, but not to the conditions of living and, to, and work to which they're exposed. Some may not even have consented to travel at all, and many will have been deceived about the nature of the work. So even if you are a willing an active agent to be smuggled, you might have been deceived. And one knows for a fact that many young girls come to England, for example, to work as au pairs, to work in bars and so on, end up being forced into prostitution and the like and so on and so forth. So really, the distinction here, obviously the government, the policymakers, want to frame the debate in a particular way. You, the lawyer of the future, the policymaker of the future, the activist of the future, the people that we in universities set out to train will see it differently and will say that there's much more going on here than this simplistic dichotomy that is being presented. And the same goes with the boat people. I mean, how on earth has anyone... Uh, one of the earlier books I wrote, um, uh, Refugee Status and the World Order, a point I make in the preface is that it's remarkable that trained journalists, really properly trained journalists, We'll ask your migrants stepping off a boat or a ship or whatever, all manner of questions. But the one question they'll never ask him, these are trained journalists, is what are you fleeing from? What is it that happened to you? How many times do you see that on television? That question is never asked. They'll ask you, him, well, so where do you get this forged document? And how did you, who did you dupe? And, and how many corners did you cut? But hey, were you afraid of being subjected to FGM, female genital mutilation. A mother who brings a 12-year-old daughter will say, look, I had this done to me, and when my husband said, now it's our daughter's turn, I simply could not bear this, and I had to run away with my daughter. She has a story to tell. How many times do you have that from the uh, mouth of a journalist? It's never there. So the way in which you frame the debate is really everything. So human trafficking, in the few minutes that I have, what I want to say about that is, is this, that it's um, really now up there with the, amongst the big three, along with uh, drug trafficking and the arms trade, it is the greatest generator of wealth worldwide. It is the new modern slavery. You have it everywhere. It uh, earns approximately 32 billion pounds a year. So it is a mega money-making machine. And there are so many people who are trafficked um, across to the uh, industrialized uh, countries of the world. Uh, and, uh, and yet the reality is, the ironic thing is that a decade ago, human trafficking was not even commented upon in, in, in the West. Um, it wasn't at the forefront of public debate. Nowadays, hardly a day goes by when the broadsheets of the uh, British newspapers don't have something or other to say about people being trafficked. If you go on YouTube, you'll actually see a 20-year-old uh, 
the Slovakian woman being sold on Oxford Circus, on Oxford Street. You see this being shown, this man, this Albanian man is selling this woman, this girl whose face you can't see, she's got blue jeans on and she's turned, and there's another man at the other end and he's bartering, he's saying, how much for? You can actually see this and it's really a, a picture that takes you back. So this is really happening. Uh, and it is a real problem of how to deal with it. It is on the increase. It is a modern form of slavery. It is a crime against humanity. And despite this, people haven't quite worked out exactly how to formulate the debate. And even academics, even us, we people who work in universities, haven't really quite found a comfortable position. And this is rather quite uh, interesting because human trafficking straddles disciplines as diverse as law enforcement, human rights, gender rights, asylum protection, health, law enforcement again, social services. And despite all these considerations, these overlapping considerations, it isn't quite clear exactly how we are supposed to be dealing with this. It's a brand new science in many ways that needs to be looked at. Women are once again at the forefront of it, largely because much of uh, human trafficking is to do with uh, uh, sexual exploitation. Again, the other thing is in terms of the figures. Many countries in the West don't keep any figures. And there are a number of reasons for this. One reason is this, that um, much of the, many of the figures in many countries are classified information, confidential information that governments want to share. Another is that many countries are, quite frankly, inept in dealing with this problem. They, first and foremost, see it, hey, surprise, surprise, fundamentally as an immigration problem. You come in as a woman who is selling sexual services on the street, and you've come in as an illegal immigrant committing criminal offences. Nobody wants to know that you've been trafficked. There are no votes in it. There are plenty of votes in saying, as is often the case in London, police this morning at 6 a.m. broke into a house and rescued 21 women who were working as prostitutes. Well, that's what the news item says, but immediately those women are then treated as having broken criminal laws and whisked off to be uh, returned back. When they return back, experience shows that if you've, been, if you've come from Eastern Europe, from Estonia, Lithuania, Albania, in fact, even from uh, Asia and so on, um, from China, the snakehead gangs bring you in. The interesting thing is, if you've been trafficked once, you are more pliable, that much more amenable to be trafficked again. Your spirit is broken, and the gangs pick you up again, and they traffic you again. So in fact, the last thing you want is to be sent back to that country. The thing you want, the thing you want is refugee asylum status. Right, that's what you want. And yet, it's not possible to do it. Why? Because refugee policy is predicated on the notion of surrogate protection. Your own state in North Korea, in Thailand, if you're a, a Rohingya in Burma, your own state is not able to provide you with protection of which you are a citizen. And therefore you turn in international law to another state to offer you deputized surrogate protection. In every other case, immigration falls within the sovereign control of the nation state. The state decides how many students it wants, how many workers it wants, how many doctors it wants, how many uh, working holiday makers it wants. 
But when it comes to refugee law, the Refugee Convention, signed now by 148 countries worldwide, and ever increasing in number, the one thing about refugee law is this, that even though the narrative has been lost, everybody agrees it's a good thing, and more and more countries are signing up. Uh, and it remains this wonderful ideal, this ideal of protecting someone who is really in need of, of protection. And the fact remains that uh, um, you can, as a refugee, turn to a state and say, look, I have no attachment to you whatsoever, but I have a well-founded fear of persecution, so please take me in. And there is an international obligation, not by, of right, by way of right, by way of, sorry, not by way of privilege, but by way of right, you can call upon that state to let you in. That's what's so great about this. So, so uh, that's uh, why uh, this is so important. This is why the trafficked person wants this. So many countries don't have information. Uh, many countries don't want to share information. Those countries that do have information, and the main ones have been Germany uh, and some of the Nordic countries, the Scandinavian countries, what you found there is that in, ca in the case of Germany, for example, they've got very good data on women who are trafficked for sexual exploitation. But they don't make any distinction between labor uh, trafficked uh, people, people who have come in to work in the sweatshops, to work as indentured laborers, to work in, in the menial tasks. So they don't have, again, complete information in that way. And the kind of people that we are getting are, which are now well known, young children being trafficked for begging purposes uh, and theft in London. So children are brought in to beg money. People are trafficked for cannabis cultivation, for benefit fraud, for marriage purposes. So a great many uh, marriages that, well not a great many, but a percentage of the marriages that take place with people with irregular status are Eastern European women who will happily marry somebody for a fee in order to give that person a status. Why Eastern European? Because many of them are now members of the European Union and because that's the case, they have rights of free movement, they marry someone and then they are able to then remain. Uh, so there is trafficking for that purpose. And then, of course, sexual uh, uh, exploitation as well. So the uh, uh, range is ever-expanding and ever-increasing, and the problem uh, continues. And yet the official approach is to treat it as a specific crime rather than to support its victims to treat it as people who are criminals uh, embarking upon illegal immigration. And so the question that is posed is this. How can we use the law to produce a victim-centered approach? Because the problem here is this, isn't it? You're dealing with individuals. You're dealing with people who, at first blush, will straight away tell you they're victims. But are not treated as victims. They're treated as transgressors of the law. How can you have a victim-centered approach? And does refugee law and do refugee lawyers see here an opportunity to affirm the fundamental tenets of international protection uh, on which their discipline is founded? Why do I say this for this reason? As I said a minute ago, with uh, refugee law, provided you can show a well-founded fear of persecution, you can enter the country and claim asylum status. But the fear has to be of the state. Traditionally, in an international order governed by nation states, it is the state that prosecutes you. Now, the state may either prosecute you uh, willingly, deliberately, because you're a minority, and, uh, for example, the 
Romanian gypsy population in Eastern Europe are now routinely uh, the state is an active agent. Or non-state agents may persecute you. And again, uh, in Eastern Europe, in Albania and so on and so forth, uh, the gypsies are beaten up by skinhead gangs and so on. When the gypsies go to the police station, they're laughed at and thrown back to the gangs again. So here the state is complicit in the beating up by non-state agents. Ultimately, the state is still responsible. So all, all, all of that works perfectly well, and cases like Horvath, which is the leading case in England, shows that um, protection was granted uh, to a refugee in the year two, 1990, even though the state was not fundamentally involved, but non-state agents were involved. But there's a problem with human trafficking, is there not? Here, by definition, the state is never actively involved in rounding up young women or minority groups and trafficking them across. It's all done by non-state agents. So how can refugee law rise to the challenge? You really are uh, at the frontiers of the law here, are you not? Okay, so that's the question. Now, um, I want to suggest that the answer lies in the fact that uh, human trafficking, uh, as a form phenomenon, is a form of modern slavery. And as such, it renders its victims particularly eligible for refugee status. There is something qualitatively different about victims of human trafficking as being people who have been subjected to a form of slavery that makes this different. And the reason I say that is this. If you look at racial crime, why is racial crime so bad? Well, leaving aside the fact that it is to do with something that... Um, is not within your control, but the entire edifice of discrimination law is to do with things that are not within your control. My working class background, the fact that I speak with a northern accent, the fact that uh, I'm the wrong colour, the fact that I'm a minority, the fact that I'm a woman, the fact that I'm gay, the fact that I'm disabled, are all matters that are not within my control. And so what discrimination law says is, it is perfectly right and proper to penalize somebody for voluntary acts. He voluntarily committed uh, a crime. Professor Just voluntarily turned up late for his lectures and therefore we're going to give him a bad report. But involuntary acts are things for which they should not be penalized. And all these are kinds of discrimination that are involuntary. But even over and beyond that, I would suggest that there is something about race that is different and that is its historical experience going back, and this is, becomes vividly clear with the experience of the US, where the black African population were enslaved. And so only in America, because largely only in America, was the law used as an instrument to enslave people. Have you got affirmative action going in the way that it has gone? And I would suggest that once people have been enslaved, given that the experience of slavery and its abolition in 1807 by William Wilberforce um, was an experience that the Western countries went through to see slavery now rearing its ugly head again in those very countries that championed its abolition, the Anglo-Saxon countries out there at the forefront doing this, I think adds something qualitatively different to human trafficking that um, requires refugee laws to respond to this in this way. The Slavery Convention 1926, in fact, deals with this specifically as a ownership 
of any or all of the attributes of that person's uh, human uh, integrity. Uh, that is tantamount to slavery. So this is what I would, what I would argue. Now, um, the <coughs> leading case here in terms of a victim-centered approach is the case of Rantsev in 2010. Uh, this was a finding by the European Court of Human Rights, and the European Court referred to the Slavery Convention 1926, and they su suggested that uh, trafficking in human beings is a major problem, that it threatens not only human rights, but the fundamental values of democratic societies. If I'm picking up the Evening Standard every evening and reading about people being trafficked, and those people being then treated as victims, fundamental values of that society, what it is based upon, are at risk. I often say to my class um, that when you look at these questions of human rights violations, human trafficking, FGM cases, refugee law, and so on and so forth, it is not really so much a question of what about, about the other. Actually, it is as much about us as it is about the other, because it tells us what we are about. I, I gave a talk um, a few weeks back uh, to a general audience and somebody got up and said, oh, you lawyers are terrible. How on earth can you justify uh, spending all that money on that man, Abu Qatada, this known terrorist uh, who has been living in London as a refugee? You see, this is another reason why I say that the securitization of refugee policy is now so important because a group of people, Abu Qatada, Abu Hamza, the man with the hook, um, uh, al-Masri, came in as refugees, were allowed to live, they were firebrand preachers, spoke about Islam and so on and so forth. British government did not mind, because in a way, so long as it allowed us to keep an eye on them, and allowed us to look at who those people were that were attending their sermons, we were quite content with that. Until, of course, they began plotting against those very countries that gave them refuge. And then when that happened, you know, the, 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 the deal was off and now we wanted them deported. And people say to me, look, uh, why would you not return him to Jordan? Because the Jordanian government, where a death sentence has been passed on him, wants him back. The British government went out, the Home Secretary went out, signed a memorandum of agreement to say he will not be tried on evidence procured by torture. He himself will not be tortured, but take him back, please. He challenged this case in the courts. Uh, the courts three times said, we are still not satisfied that the Jordanian government will not uh, actually torture him or try him on, on tortured evidence produced by torture. And we had to uh, hold back. We couldn't return him. And he has used that one million pounds in legal aid money, you know, where the rest of the country is uh, having to make do. And this man was saying, how can you lawyers justify it? And I'm afraid the answer is simple. We are responsible for what we do. It's about us. It's about the rule of law. Once you give way on one thing, you have to give way on everything else. It quickly seeps its way through. Now, at long last, after, I think, the fourth visit by the Home Secretary to Jordan, she has come back with a document which the courts have said is worth the paper it's written upon and that she, he may now be removed back to, uh, to Jordan and he will not be tortured. So you've simply got to get it right. It's about us, really. We, we will not be a party to torture. We will not be a party to such human rights violations. And once you give way, effectively you, you've become like your enemy. You've become like Osama bin Laden. He must be laughing in his grave, the fact that uh, torture has been done you know, with a straight face in America, the fact that you've got Guantanamo Bay, 
the fact that you know people are detained without deten uh, deten uh, without trial and so on and so forth. Those are the values that we fought for several hundred years to to preserve. Went through the Spanish Inquisition, you know, not a passing affair, if, event of some 400 years, and at the end of that came out this wonderful edifice based on the rule of law that we now risk throwing away. So that really is 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 what the European Court is also referring to that fundamental values of democratic society. Ransev, Miss Ransev, was a Russian national. She was trafficked to Cyprus, where she dies. Uh, the European Court says, not that you, Russia, are responsible for her death, not that you're responsible for the Cypriot authorities killing her, but you're responsible for never having investigated why it was that she was trafficked as your national from your country to Cyprus. Why you did not do that? And because you didn't, you violated the right to life, Article 2. And it's an absolutely groundbreaking decision that opens up the, the way for others. Now, that decision, I, I've got very limited time, so we'll simply say uh, 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 three or four further things. This victim-centered approach can be seen uh, in the following ways. The leading instrument on um, human trafficking uh, are twofold. The first one is the trafficking protocol. Uh, this is the UN protocol to prevent, suppress, and punish trafficking in persons, 2000. Uh, it's known as the Palermo pr protocol because there were two protocols. Uh, the second one was to uh, uh, do with uh, uh, the uh, uh, arrival of uh, people um, without documentation. Um, and the problem, the problem with this protocol is this, that it wasn't a victim-centered approach at all. It was actually part of an organized crime initiative by the United Nations. And the other one that went with it was the uh, protocol against the smuggling of migrants by land, sea, and air. So again, it is to do really with organized crime and it quickly got signed up by 117 countries because those countries wanted to prevent organized crime taking place. They weren't signing up to protect these poor women who were being trafficked. So clearly, the emphasis was, was on the wrong thing here. All right, And you've had, therefore, no uh, actual uh, prosecutions uh, under this to any great degree. The second instrument is much more interesting. And before I come to that, let me just uh, uh, refer to the problem with... Uh, this instrument, which is the, really the leading instrument. It refers to human trafficking in the following ways. Trafficking persons shall mean the recruitment, transportation, transfer, harboring, or receipt of persons. Straight away here you see a problem. Trafficking is to do with recruitment, transportation, transfer, harboring, receipt. This is a process, is it not? This is a process taking place across many countries. You are recruited in Thailand, you are transferred through Korea and wherever else. You are received in Australia to render sexual services. Which government is in charge? Which police authority is in charge of tracking you down? Damn, damn difficult, isn't it? Very difficult. I mean, fine it is to say it's a policing matter, but how do you police this? But it is by means of the threat or use of force or other forms of coercion. So, if you're an indebted laborer in Pakistan and someone says to you, well look, uh, you're never going to be able to pay off your debt, you've got to send off your daughter uh, abroad, 
that's a form of coercion. Uh, it may not be a threat, but it's a form of coercion, and that suffices for this definition. Um, by abduction, fraud, deception of the abuse of power or of a position of vulnerability or of the giving or receiving of payments or benefits to achieve the consent of a person having control over another person. So that's the first part of the definition. The second part is exploitation shall include at a minimum the exploitation of the prostitution of the others or other forms of sexual exploitation, forced labor, services, slavery and so on. So trafficking alone is not it. It's got to be trafficking accompanied by exploitation. Now, your exploitation might be sexual exploitation, it might be forced labor, it might be the rendering of services, it might be something else. But there's got to be exploitation, otherwise you're not trafficked for these purposes. There's a third element. And the third element is this. The consent of the victim of trafficking in persons shall be irrelevant where any means set forth in the subparagraph above are used. So provided that, I mean, if someone says to you, well, look, I, you know, there are many cases.